Hello and welcome to another episode of Inside Track with Colin Isles. But wait, that's not Colin Isles, you say, and you're quite right. It's Gavin Kennedy from Solid Gold Podcasts. Uh, we drag Colin every so often to come and make his podcasts. In his last episode, Colin spoke about the three pillars of great leadership. And today, he's here to talk about the difference between active and passive decision-making. Colin, the question I think is at the root of all of this is, how do successful companies make better decisions? Firstly, thanks, Gav. Thank you very much for inviting me in to have this conversation. I think it's a, in some ways, it's a very obvious conversation, at least you'd have thought so. Um, but actually, from my experience working in corporates, it's not something which gets a huge amount of attention. And what I mean by that is, it's blatantly obvious that successful companies will, in general, outperform other companies when their decision-making process is better. You can't guarantee it because there is still a certain amount of luck and circumstance and things that you can't control. But all other things being equal, if you've got a a corporate culture which really does incentivize people to go and take decision-making in a structured type of way, you have a natural advantage. Now, the way that I look upon it is to say there are two types of decision-making very broad themes this, but there are two types of decision-making that organizations take. There's the typical, the atypical organizations who don't put a huge amount of thought into how to take better decision-making will use approach A, and there's approach B, which a minority, 5%, 10%, maybe even 1% or 2% will use, which gives them a massive, massive advantage. So what are they? Well, the, the first one, the, kind of, the one I'm painting as this negative feature is this idea of passive decision-making. And you could summarize that as saying you have a huge bureaucracy, it's top-down, it's hierarchically driven, it's using KPIs based around numbers to infect decision-making, and you have this situation, therefore, where it is not a sensible career approach for people to put their head above the parapet and take decisions of any material consequence. It's much easier, putting it another way, to go into the office to follow the Joneses, to follow what was done yesterday and the year before, and therefore not to go and rock the boat in any way, shape or form. And, and in many ways, actually, I think that that decision-making has, has actually been successful in, in decades in the past, particularly where you haven't seen huge amounts of change. It works perfectly when you're looking to build efficient organisations. So let's give you an example of that. Not much is changing. There's a cost play here where we can go and improve margin and beat our competitors. Therefore, let's outsource. Let's set up standard operating procedures. Let's think about going and finding more efficient ways to do things through functionalization. But the downside is it becomes such a structured type approach, you actually take away decision-making from all of your staff. They become lemmings. There's nothing for them to think about or do. They just follow um, process and procedure. We are not living in that time anymore. We're now living in a time where everything is changing continually. I, I like the way that Sally Mishmel, author of Exponential Organizations, defined this term where he said, we're living in a moment where we've got, you know, 20, 30 Gutenberg moments. You know, if you remember the, the impact of the printing press, that was quite substantial as suddenly people around the world have got access to information and can learn to read. We're sitting in a situation where because of robotics and artificial intelligence and computer processing power and chip improvements and maybe quantum computing in a year or two and cloud services and, and a gazillion other inventions are all complementing each other to go and radically change the opportunities business have to solve problems. And clearly solving problems is how businesses make you know money. 
So we're in this incredibly volatile world where now passive decision-making isn't going to be helpful because that natural atherapy that you have in an organisation, that resistance to change, this kind of uh, you know, desire really not to do anything particularly radical, okay, is going to be the death of that company. What was a good risk approach has now become something which will lead to your demise. You used the word structured several times there. Are you saying that we can build active decision-making into the structure? Yeah, I think so. Let, let's, let's give an example of what I mean by active decision-making. Let's be a bit, a bit more positive. I think in, a, in an article I wrote a couple of months back, I used an example of an executive assistant, right? Uh, in that passive-making culture, she goes into work. Sorry, I should say he or she goes into work. Okay, but I'm, I'm going to use the, uh, the she as I've started on this. She goes into work and she doesn't do anything particularly different from day to day. So the CEO, the senior executive who relies on her to help organize his diary in his day, I'd like this boardroom to be set up. Twelve people turn up. They all turn up on site. They have an hour meeting. There's minutes and actions that are taken in it. Maybe there's someone who's writing and taking those. It's a very old-fashioned model for meeting, Okay. Now, in a passive world, nothing changes. That continues forever. Now we've got an active world, and the PA says, well, there's got to be a more efficient way to do this. I mean, I listened into that meeting. The whole of the hour, most of it was completely rubbish. It didn't do anything material. There's 10 minutes of pointless introductions. There's 10 minutes of reading back on prime minutes and action points. You know, this doesn't make sense. Wouldn't it be more efficient to set up, say, a 20-minute Zoom meeting? No travel time. We just get started. Let's cut out the original um, size of the agenda by, I don't know, using tracking software to show that people have actually read the pre-beefing notes. And we're going straight into a decision-making, and she introduces the idea of a decision-making toolkit. And there's, there's loads of those that are available. So suddenly in 20 minutes, you've compressed, you know, a very positive outcome. Why, why doesn't she do that? Now, to be an active decision maker, you've got to take personal risk. You might not do it because maybe they don't listen. Maybe you're not encouraged to go and do the research to come up with those ideas. Maybe there's no incentives for you, even if you do come up with those ideas, because it's a fixed salary. And, you know, actually to go and do that research, it would take a weekend, which I'd prefer to spend doing something else. But the reality is, if you have that type of mindset, not just in this example of your PA, but across all of the people in your organization, you start to get better ideas to try to go and actually compete with the trends, design better products and services, be more efficient in terms of what you're doing, enjoy the work that you're doing, and solving problems in a multitude of different ways. And so, so this idea of active decision making is critical if you're going to be a, a progressive organization. Some of the language you're using sounds like you're describing a startup and the excitement and the decision-making and all levels before you overstructure the thing. And it also resonates a little, rings a bell for me with uh, Christensen's articles on the innovator's dilemma. Yeah. Is this the same thing in behavior as opposed to just being a dilemma? Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. And, and I think, you know, people misunderstand startups. They think that startups are, are messy, unstructured affairs. And I agree they're messy, Right. But they are structured just in a different way, because as a startup, you don't know exactly what things are going to be like in six months' time. So you have to structure yourself in a way to take decisions incredibly rapidly. You know, Now, you might call it in startup language, we're going to pivot, or we're going to run prototypes regularly to go and get feedback, which we can bring back into the system. We're going to be really focused on minimum viable product releases. We're going to go and take an 80-20 sort of 
idea where we build our products to the sort of minimum level where we think it's going to give us some sort of result. We release it. We see what the users are actually thinking about it. We get their feedback and we use that to cycle back in to how we go and set the next product roadmap for this particular product. So it's very fast and dynamic, but it's not unstructured. Another example is you might sit there with a high-level purpose. We're not sitting there saying we're going to go and drive 20% improvements on margin. We're going to go and have this uh, more ethereal purpose about improving people's lives. We're designing an app for you know, people with cancer or something along those lines. We've got this ethereal uh, but pro-human you know, positive purpose. That is still structured because setting that as your North Star allows people to go and have the autonomy to take decisions. And you can really compare them. You say, great, so if releasing this app for, I don't know, we'll reduce the price point by you know, 50%. If this is aligned with our purpose and we still think over time we can improve our user base system, make it profitable at some point, and our investors are going to like it, this is great decisions to have. Now, that's not as structured in old-fashioned you know, parlance. Here's a board meeting. Here's an executive committee. Here's a 1,001 pages, which no one reads of research to go and inform the decision-making. It just looks good. Okay, Very structured process, but actually, for most organizations, a little bit of a waste of time. People who are in the strategy department or preparing the research, that, that's their job. They have to do it. And therefore, I feel like I should be reviewing it in this way because it's been done since time immemorial as a CEO or as the head of strategy at a board level. Okay, but the reality is why? What, what is that information? It's just people's ideas and, and thoughts, really. And maybe that's the tick of a, a consultancy firm like a Deloitte or a Bain who give it a stamp of approval. Structured, but I'd say fairly ineffectual nowadays in a fast-moving world versus the startup example, still structured, but structured around being incredibly fast and using user feedback loops to get the ideas about your products and services. Again, that former example in that corporate is very passive, okay, because I don't want to take a decision. I feel like it's so important for the organization. I'm going to waste lots of time before I can take a decision. Startup, we don't have time. We don't have the money. We don't have the backing. We've got to make this work today. So I'm going to take a decision today and do it and see what the feedback loop is. And through this iterative approach, structured, it will give me the answers more quickly and hopefully lead to the success stories, you know, the next unicorn that we see. And, and we clearly want more of those in South Africa. Externally, as an observer, how do I recognize an organization that is doing this? And how do I choose who I should emulate or which behaviors to emulate? Let's throw that back. Which organizations do you admire? Just give me your top three. I don't, I, I'm not getting three right off the top. Companies I admire. Well, let, let's decide what admire means. Would I invest in them? Would I use their products and services? Or So take it from a consumer perspective. Companies that you admire because you've used their products and services and you've really enjoyed the experiences. Or companies you admire because friends of yours have used their services and they've enjoyed the experiences. Okay. Yeah, it, gets, it, it can be quite a complex answer because there are aspects of people I admire while there are other parts that I don't, and I can still get a good user experience while not perhaps liking some other aspects of them. So uh, I'm a great Netflix fan. I'm a Google fan over Microsoft, for example. It uh, doesn't mean I agree with everything Google is doing, but I like their products and, and the way they work in my, in my life. Uh, Spotify is a really interesting one right now. I'm a Spotify fan. And they're going through a really tough time now with this Joe Rogan incident. So it's not as simple as, well, I admire them and that's awesome. And, and, and we're seeing Eck go through a real public display of challenging decision-making right now. Mm. Um, yeah, it's not a simple answer where I just look and say, oh, here's my top three companies I admire and I wish we were more like them. 
So yeah, you can you, you let's use those three examples that you're given: Google, Netflix, and Spotify. Um, and I'd add on to it companies that I like, Wise, uh, formerly TransferWise. I think they've done awesome things for cross-border FX. Amazon, massive fan of Amazon. Um, coming from the UK and having used their, their delivery services for many years, it's just absolutely phenomenal what they've created. There. Yeah, yeah. Amazon's, Amazon should be on the list. We've been using them for so long, you kind of push them out, yeah. uh, out of uh, immediate thought. Um, and then more local examples. I think if I look in South Africa, Discovery clearly... Um, I've been impressed with uh, the Purple Group, with Easy Equities, Charles Savage, what they're doing in terms of democratizing investments in shares. So, so my my answer to it is, although you, you know you think it's quite difficult, you you don't have to look too deeply at companies to get a sense of the fact that they are more innovative, more adaptable, more agile than some of their boring legacy competitors. Because you can you experience it. Spotify is awesome. I love Spotify, especially because I find it you know ten times better than Apple Music's you know version. So each of them have got product out there, and I think all of those examples, you know, you can have a hypothesis that it looks like to, they've designed better products and services. They're more nimble. They're more adaptable. Therefore, you can go to the next level and say, how have they done that? And when you talk to the staff that work in these organisations or ex-staff, you continually get this. Reassess, restatement of, of what we were expecting. They were quite purposeful. Google, organizing the world's you know, information. Discovery, helping people to live longer and healthier lives. I'm not sure what Spotify's is. Netflix is about entertaining, you know, bringing entertainment to our homes, but it's not really just about content of you know, the, the box. So they've got a purpose that they run with. Now, Netflix, I know for a fact, is an incredibly innovative organization because they've just released a book written by um, Reed Hastings, their CEO and founder, which is well worth everyone reading, just explaining how they've removed all of the policies from their organization. So they are the epitome of an organization which is trying to give autonomy of decision making to their staff in a way where they can actively take risk to try new things for the benefit of the underlying purpose. So that they're, they are perhaps the ultimate management case about what I mean by active decision making. Google do exactly the same thing. They actively encourage their staff to spend 20% of their time working on ideas which are unrelated to their specific day-to-day job. Not can't be outside of the, uh, the Google um, sort of uh, requirements, but it can be outside of your department, you know, your specific sort of role. And then on the back of that, they've got a platform or a methodology in place called Objectives and Key Results, OKRs, right? That is a significant advantage for them because this is all about encouraging people to take active decisions. Set your objective, make sure it's a stretch target, make sure it emotionally resonates, and then set key results, which in general, you're not going to achieve all of them. Yeah, 70%, great. And then it's not about whether it's a red or a green and whether it's impacting your bonus. It's about a discussion with your manager and your peers about what you can do to try to improve the chances of actually achieving those results to actually hit that objective. So as an example of where they had great success on that, it was rolling out YouTube and getting the billions of users over a five-year period that they managed to succeed on doing, all based around setting these these clear targets and incentivizing people to go and take active risk-based decisions. Okay, so active versus passive, got it. But what do I do when I get out of bed tomorrow? What do I do differently in my organization? Look, now this is where I've got good news and bad news. Okay, the good news is I don't think this is conceptually difficult. I think if you sit down with 
reasonably intelligent and experienced business people in a room and talk about active and passive decision making and say which one would you like your organization to run with they're all going to hold up their hands and we want active we want active (laughs) everyone's a fan everyone's a fan and i think that if you show them a diagram and you say if you imagine your workforce of ten thousand people imagine the benefits that you can get if you've got all ten thousand people taking active decisions with boundaries, but all 10,000 people taking active decisions, the sum total of that as an improvement to where your organisation is going is is massive compared to if it's just centralised in your sort of top one or two layers, you know, your top 10 or 20 people, and they're really inundated with requests for sign-offs on a day-to-day basis. I'm so, so, so that's the good news. Everyone should look at it. They want it. The bad news is it's really difficult to implement. It is, and this is where I think that the the first approach I would go through are really two recommendations. Firstly, you get your leadership team around you with your peers, and you actually just have this conversation. Introduce the concept as a problem statement. I'm worried that we have an organization which is maintaining the status quo, that is using legacy thinking, that it's too passive in its decision making. And I'm worried, therefore, that in a way we've, we've structured ourselves to control ourselves so that we can be efficient and perhaps we can scale our existing products and services without too much risk. But by setting that structure, we've actually created the biggest risk of all is that we're going to become irrelevant in five years. You have got to go in if you want to push any sort of change program with this this kind of a mixture of fear and hope. We're, we're now worried this is a significant problem because if you don't phrase it in those terms, you're not going to do anything. Right. And a and hope side of things or a purpose side of things where and if we do do these things and investigate it, we can be in a massively wonderful position, better than we ever can imagine in a, in a couple of years time. So so you've got to open the discussion, the hypothesis in a frank way that says if we don't change towards more active decision making, we could literally be out of business in five or six years. The second stage, if you can get through that, if you can get by and is almost a bit easier in some ways, because what you do, you sit down as a group, you can have it facilitated if you want, but you actually say, so what can we do? It's that simple. How do we start putting in layers to support active decision-making? How do we create that environment? And there's a million things that you can do. You can I don't know, run a competition, um, record a podcast. I'll come back to that in a minute. Ask the CEO to send out a mail to the whole workforce saying that you want to explore ways to go and reduce red tape, run an ideation competition, Bring in third parties to run webinars which explain how they've transformed their companies from passive to active decision-making to give people confidence. Ask the HR team to go and assess whether you've got the right type of incentives in place. And we could go on. Let's say there's 100 small baby steps that an organization has to take to go and create a culture of active decision-making. The first step is literally getting the 10, 15 people around the table and designing the first one or two baby steps. Let's make up one. Let's, let's, and you, you use it as an example. Let's create a corporate podcast, which isn't just thinking about active uh, decision making. It's really trying to communicate more openly and transparently with our workforce. We come down to solid gold. We're going to run it. The first response, because the natural tendency is, is going to quash it. Yes, I'm worried. What is the downside risk of doing this? I don't have the time. How much is this going to cost? We tried this two years ago and it didn't work. My friends at this company said it was a complete waste of time. Right? That's what the naysayers are going to say. And that's the natural pushback. The, the, if you want a more active decision-making process, it's totally the reverse. You use this as your baby step. You say, no, we're going to do it. The risk is infinitesimally small compared to the potential benefit. The upside of being more open and transparent with our staff, we believe, could lead to 
phenomenal improvements in terms of motivation across the workforce. The probability might be small, we might mess it up, it might be a terrible podcast, and I might look a little bit stupid as a CEO who's not used to doing podcasts, but I'm willing to give it a go. I'm, the risks of those is, is, you know, one hour of my time is inconsequential, I'm running it. That is already a baby step in terms of active decision making because you're looking at the risk reward profile in a very different way. And you're saying there is a good chance that it's going to fail, but we can do it quickly. We can do it cheaply. And there's the potential, no matter how small, that there's a significant upside. That is more of the type of stuff we want to encourage. Then the next discussion starts. Maybe we should get the marketing team to help write a series of uh, blogs, internal mailers, if you want, which are a little bit more punchy than the normal corporate ones. We get some outside help to go and do it. And let's go and have a little you know, a questionnaire on the back of it to say three ideas from each of you, please, in terms of how to make. Let's see what happens. What's the downside? Yeah. Well, the downside is that people might answer and they feel disempowered because they're not listened to or no one reads it and it's only 20% or they give us loads of ideas and we don't implement them and they you know, shut up shop the next time. Those risks are there already. They're, in, they're inconsequential. Okay. The upside, if you can enter and get an idea or two, which you do execute and you publicize it properly in terms of, again, motivating people and getting that kind of flywheel effect where people starting to go and believe that they can take some risks, I think is massive. So baby steps. Go and talk about what active and passive decision making is to go and make an assessment of whether you genuinely have a problem and be open minded about that. And then try the first experiments. Sit there in an hour, come up with a couple and then go and run with them. Right. Might fail. But I can promise you, if you don't do anything, nothing is going to change. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the bell curve, the most you can lose on a small decision is 100 percent of the small decision. But on the upside, there's an endless uh, uh, well, there's an endless upside on the on the other side of the bell curve. Yeah, absolutely. And and I don't know if any if anyone listening understands or you know is aware of what an option curve looks like. But it's basically there's a small cost. I can't lose more than this yeah, small yeah. cost. But there's an upside. So if I have an option on a stock, I buy, I buy an option on Amazon. Let's say uh, you know I've got to pay twenty dollars for this uh, this this particular option. I've lost twenty dollars if that stock goes down in price. But if that price of that stock doubles. Okay, I've made a huge amount of return into, in, against the twenty dollars that I've put into this particular option. So, so it's very much this kind of option portfolio. It's it's really similar from you know how people do investment decisions, where you're saying what we really want in the organisation is lots of small experiments, small active decision making, where small amounts of risk are being taken, and then it's a bit bigger, and and you get that cumulative snowball effect. Because as you see more and more people doing that, suddenly the sum of the parts is massive in terms of the benefit you get. That's when you get products and services being developed and designed that customers love. With you mentioning podcasts, obviously can't resist the, the temptation to ask uh, why you think corporates should be doing podcasts. <laughs> okay, I've, I've opened this one up, haven't <laughs> I? Um, let, let me ask that differently. How do you think podcasting adds to the communication strategy in a way that's different from the other methods of communication they're already using? Okay, so so <laughs> I still say I like both ways you've um, asked those questions because it really opens up in exactly this this, and I can answer it with an active and a passive, you know, approach. That seems appropriate for today. So, what is the benefit for companies to go and and start creating podcasts either for their staff or their investors? or their customers, or any of the other major important stakeholders for them. The passive answer is, well, we're going to spend an hour talking about that, and I'm going to get my PowerPoint out, and I'm going to show them all sorts of facts and figures and incredible things that could happen on the back of it. And in every scenario, it will be different. So we can use an example. We can use uh, easy equities, right? Yeah. Easy equities 
are doing phenomenal podcasts and it's really clear what they're trying to do is in terms of educating um, their investor base. It's brilliant. It's a brilliant platform for them. So here's the argument for how this helps them to both learn, teach and, you know, improve their marketing. Here's Old Mutual as another example. That's a totally different argument why they might do it. Uh, maybe this is for internal staff or ABSA might do it for this reason and the government might do it for this particular reason and, you know, I do it for my... So so we could go into countless sort of rabbit warrens to answer that question and get all sorts of detail about users' subscription and drop-off rates and impacts. And that to me is the passive approach because... At the end of the day, even doing that analysis, you don't really know what the impact is going to be from running a podcast. You don't know what you don't know at that stage. You don't know what you don't know. So the active approach is you look at it and you say, in most of the cases, look, podcasts for corporates can really build trust between you, the body corporate, the, the CEO, the C-suite, whatever you want to co- and classify yourself as, uh, and your stakeholder groups. And for that fact alone, why don't you just try it? And see what happens, because the cost and the time isn't going to be massive. And the result you'll only know once you've done it. And then you'll see whether it worked or you didn't, and you'll take a decision whether to refine or to stop or to continue it as you would as if you were a startup. And that seems a much more appropriate model just to give it a go. So iteration is built into active. Yes, 100%. Passive, the, the default of passive is to do nothing. If you do nothing, you learn nothing. You look for answers from people to provide research, or you don't look for answers at all because you're actually completely inert. The default position is no decision. Uh, you have to talk me out of that. Yeah, that's 100% correct. If you want me to do something different, you're going to have to convince me. Whereas the active voice, you're saying, actually, I want to do things. I'm naturally predisposed to try to do different things every day to teach myself, to learn, to lear unlearn, to learn, you know, to go through these, you know, rapid cycles of iteration to go and actually work out what the right approach is. That's what drives, you know, good, um, successful businesses. And so, yeah, I think most companies, I can't think of one company, if I can rephrase it simply, if they've got an active mindset that shouldn't be investigating, looking at podcasts and other channels to go and inspire their, their different stakeholders. Well, I'm okay with that being the default position. <laughs> <laughs> Colin, today you took an active decision to have uh, Gavin Kennedy hosting your podcast. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much for the invite and accepting the active request. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.